Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're talking small. We're talking about small box games. And we're talking to Rachel Blasky, the CEO of 524 Labs. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hello. Really excited to have you here. You guys over there at 524 uh, are, are really experts at this. Uh, for those of you listening and you're like, who is 524? They're the people that make all the amazing, little, wonderful, mint uh, games, the little games in the tiny little mint tin box. And uh, y'all have figured out some incredible ways to do a lot with very little. You know, you, you put a lot of game into a very small box. And so I'm just really pumped to have you on the show and talk through how in the world y'all fit so much into something so small. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into games and, and all like that kind of thing? All right. Well, I'm Rachel. Uh, my husband, Justin, is the designer of Mintworks and Mint Delivery, uh, also Mint Control. And uh, he and I have been married for 17 years. And uh, if you would have asked me 17 years ago um, if I would be the CEO of a board game publishing company, I would have laughed at you. Um, of course, I was 21 then, so I didn't know anything that was going on. <laughs> but uh, my husband really got... Uh, jumped into this with the board game, um, the mint tin contest on BGG back in 2015, 2016, I think it was. Uh, and he just decided to design within the constraint. And, um, throughout that, uh, he decided to kickstart mint works and it went amazing. And then mint delivery, uh, he brought that next. And, um, at that point, he was trying to be a full-time uh, software engineer, a probably should have been full-time board game publisher, uh, board game designer, um, husband sometimes, and potentially a father of four at the same time as well. So at that point, I knew I needed to get involved uh, because he was drowning. And so I started by just kind of picking up some emails, making sure uh, things got done that way. Once I got that cleaned up, I kind of started looking around the office, was what else needs done around here. By the end of it, I was doing operations, doing manufacturing, running a Kickstarter. Then all of a sudden, I was an owner. And now I am learning all about the world of promotions and marketing. It's just one of those A to Z kind of jobs that you find yourself in. And if you're good at it, you just keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And here in about 15 minutes, you'll have to hire someone to uh, help you keep from drowning from all the things that you're now taking on. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been doing that along the way because uh, I didn't want to go the same route. <laughs> It's amazing. And I know a lot of listeners can relate to exactly what you're talking about and tell like, oh, I'll, I'll do this thing and I'll do one more thing. But you get that one more thing syndrome. And before you know it, one more thing is a thousand more things and uh, it gets crazy. And so I'm, right. I'm excited to to talk about this because I feel, I feel like, you know, designing these kinds of games is actually a really good uh, thing to do if you are uh, really busy and maybe you don't have time to develop a, a, a Euro that takes three hours to play. You know, this is something that you can kind of you know, do, do what you need to do. I, I think that was something we were talking about before the show is, is not getting too far outside of who you are and, and kind of the, the place that you're in, in life. And maybe this is a great way to, for somebody to break into the hobby and really just designing a very small game. At the same time, it is not simple. And so I'm really excited to talk through like how in the world you overcome lots of design challenges and publishing challenges and all that kind of thing. But before we get into that, what's a good working definition? Like what is a small box game exactly? Well, I would definitely uh, think, I think tiny epic size or smaller. When I think of a small footprint game, I mean, you've got Coup, you've got um, some of those. I'm trying to think of the biggest that I would say a small box game would be. I, I really can't get much bigger than the tiny epic box because otherwise I feel like you're getting out of the pocket realm. I mean, that's still a really big pocket. If it's, 
if we're talking a pocket game, if you were to, to even, um, distill it down to a micro game, which is where I kind of live is, uh, those are wallet games or, or tins or, uh, the small tuck boxes, things like that. Those are, those are kind of where my bread and butter are. Gotcha. I feel like, you know, at the airport, they've got the little, little bins where you can measure to see if your carry on. Yes. (laughs) I feel like cargo pant pocket is that bin for these kinds of games. Like, does it fit in a cargo pant pocket? And if not, it's not a small game. Sorry. You're, you're, you're outside the realm. Is that that true? (laughs) It's true. It's almost like cell phone size. Like, you know, when you get those, the big cell phones, you're like, wait, these don't fit in my pocket anymore. That's just not the right kind of phone for me. Yeah, no doubt. And so, you know, you mentioned several games right there that have done very, very well in the marketplace. The tiny uh, Epic series, I mean, they've made millions of dollars on Kickstarter. Yeah, recently. Yeah, absolutely. Just recently, a couple weeks ago, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, with the the new one. And so these games obviously have a place in the market. A lot of people love these games. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many gamers are drawn to these tiny little, little games? Well, I think that they, when you have a box like that, it's not super intimidating. Um, I don't, I, I like to think that our games are kind of um, approachable and accessible because of their size. Uh, and I know even with the tiny Epic games, they are actually much bigger games than what you think when you look at them. And um, the idea is that you're trying to be simple, but deep. Uh, Mintworks, in particular did a really really good job of being really elegant and uh to the point where people can understand a concept and feel like they're doing something new and exciting because if that's their first uh introduction to hobby board gaming they're like wow this is way different than anything i've ever done before but they still can understand the concept and start to really uh feel good about that and then you've also got the people who then um introduced him introduced those people to it and they don't want to stop playing it either because they they don't get sick of it because it's not something that's too simple yeah and i think the word accessibility like you just said really needs to be highlighted these games are typically very accessible very approachable not overwhelming you know i was sitting here thinking about it if if you took the game shoots and ladders which is Maybe the simplest game you could think of, roll a die and then move. That's all you do. Right. But if it came in the Twilight Imperium box, then it would be overwhelming. Like if, if you opened it up and, and all these components and all these dice and all these ships and, and planets and all this stuff, even if it was only shoots and level, uh, shoots and ladders level of complexity, it would still right. be overwhelming. And so, you know, with a small box, people see it and they go, oh, I bet I can learn how to play that in just a few minutes. I bet the rule book is short. I bet it's not a super long game, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30, 40 at tops. And so I feel like a lot of people go into these games with a certain idea in mind about the game. We can talk about this a little bit more in publishing because maybe this is also a challenge if you do want to do something complex or or longer. But I feel like a lot of people kind of have an idea about what to expect and then they go in and then they have a great time because I feel like... and, and. Let's, let's talk about this for a second. What have you found as far as expectations, right? Because I've, I've played games that I expected one thing, got something totally different. And so my overall experience was bad. Not that the game was bad. It just wasn't what I anticipated or expected. And so what would you say are the things that people are expecting when they get one of your Mint 10 boxes, your, your small games, or one of the Tiny Epic games? What are, they, what are they looking for? What I love is what you just said there. You got a experience you didn't you didn't expect but you felt like it was negative but my goal is that I'm going to hand somebody this box and they're going to think okay well this is I mean this is probably super easy or or this isn't you know anything and then they they roll it out and you can teach it under a minute it's going to play under 30 so it's not going to be a massive uh uh commitment that people have to go through and they're going to say, Whoa, that was way more game than I expected that to be. And when I have somebody who has that different expectation and then is pleasantly surprised, that is what I love about our games that, that we put out. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, in business, you always want to undersell and over deliver. And so when somebody gets that little game, they're like, Oh, there can't be that much 
game inside this box. There's, there's just not that many cards. There's not many components. And so they go into it maybe with a little bit lower expectation. And then you can knock them out, you know, and, and over deliver. And I think that's a really good thing to think about both designing one of these games and also the publishing and marketing side of things. And so what are, what are some other things to be thinking about? Like if someone is, is wanting to design one of these games, maybe they're actively working on one right now, what would you suggest are things that they need to really be concentrating on to deliver that excellent experience that goes above and beyond what people expect? Well, you definitely want to focus your efforts on trying to simplify because if people are trying to um, make it too fiddly, um, where you have this concept that you know has to fit inside of a restricted area, and then you try to be really creative in that by making up uh, for that negative with a ton of extra rules. Um, that's the wrong way to go. So you need to be able to come up with a concept that is going to be exciting and, and uh intricate and but still elegant you have to it it's you're distilling you're condensing you're taking whatever your concept is and trying to strip it down to the most beautiful sense of itself um because everyone around you or everyone that, that you're going to play with needs to be able to understand it quickly and feel like um it is new and different and uh yet simple so it's it's a very interesting little type of game um and small football small footprint games are in a real weird place because they if they again under promise and over deliver then you've got a moment you've got a potential evergreen you've got one that is just you know that people will keep in their backpacks they will you know, constantly reach for it. If you're sitting in the restaurant and you're waiting, it's always in their purse or, you know, something like that. Cause it's right there and you're going to get so many plays. You're going to take the time to put good quality components into it because people are going to play it really frequently because it's a quick, fast turnaround. Um, and if you can create a product that leaves people feeling like it's good quality and like, you know, they're not, um, the cards aren't wearing out. You've got a good gloss to them. You're going to, you're, there's just so many pieces to creating a quality experience for a small box game. For sure. And you also, you just use the word elegant, which is a word that comes up a lot when we're talking about board games. And now a lot of people think elegant is, you know, simple, uh, oversimplified, maybe stripped down all the way to like its its least complex form. But I think you used a, a little bit different definition. You basically said stripped down to its most beautiful sense. And I love that. I love it's it's not stripped down to the easiest sense or the most uncomplicated. It's stripped down to like the purest, most beautiful part of it. And so is that is that what you think elegant is or is there a little bit more to it than that? That's absolutely what I think it is. I think that people need to see the beauty and the simplicity and to see how smart and tight that that is to be able to um, like, for example, I played a game today and I thought to myself, wow, this is just clicking, man, this is really, really good. I love that this is going, you know, from A to B to C and it didn't, it wasn't too much. It wasn't too little. It was perfect. And that is, that is the elegance that I look for. Yeah, definitely. It makes me think about food. You know, where I come from in the deep South, food is very, very important. You know, coming to the table, hanging out together. And there's just something about it when your grandmother or, or somebody who's cooked something and you get it on your plate, you put it in your mouth and you just go, mm. and, and everything in you says, this is how this food is supposed to taste. Right. Whatever it is, chicken, you know, fried chicken on a bone or some kind of delicious cake or pie, or whatever they've cooked, you just go, hmm. This is how it's supposed to be. And I think yes. elegant in board games is kind of the same thing. You play the game, you play out the mechanism or the card, wherever, you know, whatever you're doing in the game and you just go, hmm, this is how it's supposed to be. Like there's no extra uh, fat, so to speak on it. it it's yeah. just, yeah, this is the way it goes now. It's lean and pretty. That's all. That's what it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Where I come from, when your grandmother does that, you would say, oh, she put her foot in it. She just put her foot in this and this is the way it's supposed to be. She put her foot in it. And so maybe with game designers, you just got to figure out a way to put your foot in it. All right. It the way it's supposed to be. 
Perfect. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. And so what, what else? What are some other things you've maybe noticed in the design of these games? You've worked with some great designers. John Gilmore has worked on, on one of your games. And so anything, any tips and tricks, any advice of, of maybe things you've seen as far as, you know, designers working inside of, of the small box constraint that you would say, hey, here's some good ideas. Here's some good advice. You know, just some things you've noticed. You know, I love when um, I, I have very interactive pitches. <laughs> uh, I'll take the pitch and then I'm like, all right, now, have you thought about this? And then we have a good little, good little conversation right there. And and you got to just like work with me on the fly and just say, okay, this is something you haven't thought about, but what, what are you going to do instead? So um, uh, I took a pitch and I, uh, it was for dexterity and I loved it. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And, but have you thought about the fact that nobody wants to pick a mint up off of a bar floor? And, (laughs) and (laughs) when that whole conversation ended, we had gone into, this is the depth in millimeters in the tin. Now, how are you going to be able to plan through your two millimeter chipboard going back and forth in, you know, in the accordion style to be able to pull off some sort of barrier so that that means that it's going to be able to be taken care of. And so um, when somebody is waiting for their food and they decide that they want to flick these mints, that they're not going to be disgusting and grossed out. So like trying to um, think through, think out of the box. Uh, some people, um, that a lot of people say, well, what if you just made a card game, you know? And I'm like, no, that is not, that is not a tin game. A tin has to have components. That's, I mean, if I wanted to make a card game, I'd stick it in a tuck box. That's, that's just a way, you know, if I'm thinking like a publisher and you're making good sound manufacturing decisions that uh, are going to be good to your pocketbook, you're not going to, you're not going to waste time with that. So um, if it's going in a tin, it's got to have the components. And that means that you have to be thinking outside of just the cards. You have to figure out how things are going to uh, kind of intertwine in that way. And then um, there are some people, you know, like you've got the people who made um, Palm Island. Yes, they didn't have um, components also, but things that are that are uh, something that doesn't need a table or something that uses barriers or like just, these are all the different types of things that I can think of um, that not everybody would put into a tent. Absolutely. And this brings up a really good point for designers that are, are wanting to pitch games. And that is really put yourself in the publisher's shoes, really try to see things from their angle, because as a publisher, you can't only publish good games. They have to be good products. They have to be things that are going to stand out in the marketplace that are maybe going to do well on Kickstarter that are going to be fun to play, you know, while you're at your table and you're, you're, you're as a publisher, you're thinking about these things that maybe a designer is not, is not right. And so tell me about pitches. Like if I'm going to pitch you a small box game, what, what do I need to be doing? What are, what are some tips and tricks, maybe some best practices for ways to hook you in as a publisher? Well, you definitely need to pay attention to my line. You got to look and see what I've got, because what I usually do is I'm not going to stock another mechanism where my, my mint line focuses on distilling down to a singular mechanism where I can then use that as an approachable fit where I can say, Hey, I want to play Lords of Waterdeep with my mom. But she's never going to get there unless I start her with Mintworks first. So I'm going to teach her worker placement by having her play Mintworks because it's real quick and very um, approachable. And then I can say, okay, well, and then when you come over next week, we can I can show you Lords of Waterdeep and it's going to do the same things. So you're going to go ahead and place there. And, you know, those are those are the pieces where I'm paying attention to what I've already got what I'm looking for because I'm paying attention to what mechanisms um, are on trend. Um, I'm looking to see what hasn't been touched because that could be the future trend. Um, I mean, at this point, I think we've done rolling right guys. I think we're good. 
<laughs> you don't want a mint and write anytime soon? <laughs> no, no, no mint and rights. We're good. We're good. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I'm trying to think about my audience. So my audience, I'm going to need at least, uh, I, I always want one to five players. I want it to be taught in under a minute and I want it to be um, at like 30 minutes or under. So that it hits that quick, fast um, time where you are running filler and you're waiting for somebody to show up for your game night or you're waiting for your food, um, keeping it really in that in that sweet spot. And then I'm also going to push you um, when you tell me uh, that you have a that you've worked great, really hard and you've got this amazing game fits in a tin. It, it has all the components I'm talking about. It has all these other things and it is two to five players. And I'm going to look at you and, and I say, awesome. Win solo mode. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when you have small box games, that is where those solo solo players love to hang out. And um, that's because it's in your purse. It's in your pocket. When you're at work, do you want to sit on your phone and flip through Facebook? on your break or do you want to stretch your brain and do uh play a solo game against an ai or you know things like that and um that's something that i'm constantly you know that's i don't think that we've ever gone through a kickstarter without having solo mode with the exception of mint co-op because it's inherently solo being a co-op game so those are those are the things that i am back and forth with on every pitch Gotcha. And so let's talk about some of these games just a little bit more in depth. We've mentioned a few of them. And so I just want to give uh, listeners a little bit more uh, frame to kind of think through these things. And also, these are great games to check out. Uh, but let's talk about Mintworks. That was the first one. Uh, yep. Whenever Justin designed it, did you guys have any idea that it was going to lead to anything close to what it's led to now and kind of being the hallmark you know, of your company, really the, the flagship of your company? Uh huh. Yeah, no, I had, we had no, <laughs> no idea at all. <laughs> And, and it was real crazy because, uh, I was very much out of the picture. We had actually just, uh, adopted three kids. Um, uh, we had one biological son. We had, uh, two more boys that we adopted and a daughter at all at the same time, their siblings. And I had my head down in the trenches. I was nowhere near <laughs> during this point. And Justin, was doing that kind of for his own creative outlet. Um, cause, uh, when you, you adopt kids from trauma, it's real tough. Um, and he was using that as a chance to kind of, um, interact with the community. And then he started to kind of learn about, um, Kickstarter and read through Jamie Stegmeyer's book. And he was telling me about how he was, um, re listening through all of the the i can't remember he was either listening or reading through things i know he listened to it he's a big audiobook guy and so he i know he was listening through on that and then also reading all the different um kickstarter uh blogs that that jamie has put out and so he was following everything down to the letter and and it was a really really good um roadmap for him and and it really kind of paid off with how how that Mintworks Kickstarter went. Yeah, and it's definitely definitely worked out pretty well. What would be the like one minute elevator pitch for Mintworks? Ah, so you are building a city, um, a building a neighborhood, and you are uh, trying to get your engine going, and you're going to put. Uh, in these different buildings and as you build them you're going to gain points and once you hit seven points you win gotcha just that simple yep you just put down the mints for your currency and they activate and there you go very cool and then the follow-up was mint delivery and so give me the quick pitch on that one ah that one it's been a few minutes since i've played that one um my uh, mint delivery is great because my kids love taking the little 
the little uh, trucks and driving them all around the table. And what you're trying to do is go from Intopia City to the outlying communities, and you're going to be uh, filling orders for the uh, warehouses because you're trying to sell get all of your candies, your mints out to the suburbs because they've they're very popular. And so you you're trying to be as efficient as possible. And uh, once you finish out some of your the appropriate numbers of orders you're trying to see who did the best job with the uh, highest value of orders and it is um what i say is i always win that game because um soccer moms are amazing at that game because we have to get from point a to point d and do it all really really quickly and efficiently <laughs> that is fair you have a uh an unfair advantage in that game. I don't think you should know. be allowed to play. I'm or at amazing you have to at play, it. You, you, can only, you have to start on turn three or something like that. Yes, yeah, my handicap, that. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then after that, you had Mint Co-op. Tell me about that one. Yeah, Mint Co-op. It is kind of a cute little mini pandemic where you are uh, fighting against villains <laughs> that have invaded Mintopia. And you have superheroes that are trying to stand up to the villainy. And they are coming at you by with their bad breath. And <laughs> we had a lot of fun with the theming on Mint Cooperative. And what you're trying to do is uh, each time um, they are attacking, they're creating trouble. And you flip a trouble card and you're taking away uh, mints that are on each of the different suburbs that you learned about in mint delivery. And uh, once you take away the mints, things get panicked. You actually uncover panic symbols on each of the city cards. And then your job is to go back through um, by drafting the dice that uh, have different actions. Um, and each of the uh, each of the different superheroes can go and fly over to wherever they're at and calm everybody down <laughs> by putting mints back. And uh, if every, every, there are three mayhem cards that end up going through and uh, through the trouble deck. And when they come out, you take a direct hit on everything. So uh, that's kind of where we have trouble. Gotcha. Okay. And then the latest one is Mint Control. So wrap things up with that one. Well, Mint Control is when you are trying to uh, gain the market share um, because everybody has figured out that mints are money and they want to take over. So you're trying to uh, use action tiles that um, have perks. So kind of like Puerto Rico, um, where if you choose that action, you're going to go ahead and give that, um, uh, get an extra perk. So uh, you are basically trying to kick people out. And um, that's how that goes. It's very, very simple area control. Yeah, definitely. Now, I've noticed that all of your mint games are in basically the same world and are kind of influenced by each other. Uh, is that obviously it's on purpose, but tell me, tell me more. It, it, did you find that you got more uh, followers or more backers, more fans of the games because they're kind of all interrelated or, or tell me kind of about that from the publishing side? Well, I would definitely say from the marketing side, it looks like a set. You're paying attention to the fact that, that people are going to see that they're similar looking. I mean, in terms of, their um overall packaging and things like that and so the more that you can use that to build um you carve out your space on your flgs uh shelf the better that's definitely something that um from the publisher side that's something i'm thinking um design wise um it is definitely um really fun to develop the characters I think it's really cool to be able to start to live in that world and, and uh, wonder what they're going to do next. And um, we actually had Quackalope. We kind of told him the story and let him tell that uh, story of the Mint series at one point during a in, in a video. And I, I thought that was really fun because I really like, uh, especially because we do a lot of promos with the AI in our solo formats, um, and we use that to kind of incorporate our own personal lives into it too, because, uh, uh, for example, 
um, Justin and I are both um, AI in a couple different games. And so that's fun because then you've got fans that are like, I beat Rachel. <laughs> and, and then I, I get all um, offended and everything. And it's, it's like, no, 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 you cannot. <laughs> um, we also have uh, references to our family pets. Um, we've got Ari. Uh, she's our little black lab and she um, is in one of the games too. There was Sonic. We had a hedgehog that was kind of like our, uh mascot in in a couple of the campaigns and and then was forever immortalized as one of the ai so uh it's a really fun way to kind of uh draw people in and and humanize uh the company behind the games and and people enjoy feeling like they're connected and uh a part of the publishing the publisher's family or the designer's family yeah, and that's a really, really good point is, you know, people much more prefer to buy something from a person than from a corporation, right? And when they know you, they know what you look like, they, they've, you know, heard stories about you or your family, whatever, they, they connect. And when people connect, they're much more likely to uh, want to to back your game or, or to be a fan of what you're doing. And so I think that's just, you know, it, it's not only better overall, it's also good business. And so that's, that's yes. a really smart way to do it. Now, let's talk about replayability. And that's something that has to come up because there's so few components, so few cards. And so how, how do you make sure these games are replayable so that they're not, you know, so it's not the same experience every single time? Oh, definitely. Um, you are going to have to, uh, like, what, for example, one of the things that we're working on uh, for Mint Delivery, that is going to be a, uh, we're going to see if we can um, make the map uh uh, variable. So uh, trying to change things around each time so that you don't have the same the same thing setups. Uh, you're going to have advanced locations that um, you only pull out a certain number uh, each time. And so you're not going to be able to play all the various combinations otherwise. Um, one of the things I like about Mint Control is uh, it goes off of uh, the the amount of influence spots on a location uh, you choose enough for enough locations so that you have five spots for however many people are playing. Now you've got, you know, 18 cards or something. I can't remember off the top of my head, but a certain several different cards and they all have uh, two or four or, you know, all these different ones. And you can, you can choose the different ones that you can set out for it. It's just very different each time. Um, just having lots and lots of combinations. I would say that's one of the things that a lot of button shy designs do really well um, for like Sprawlopolis or, or Circle of Wagons. They have all of these varied objectives that are on the back of whatever their, their uh, cards are. And so you could have 18 different um types of uh, of objectives and it's it's just a very fresh experience each time definitely i think jason tagmeyer at button shot could really teach a master class on how to be clever in your game design how to get the most out of your components how to use multi-use cards multi-use components i, I think it's just a, a, a wonderful thing and, and if you're wanting to do this yourself you're listening to this and you're like gosh i want to get better at this go find obviously these mint games because they're they'll teach you a lot but also the button shot line Find some of those games because they will they will show you just how much you can do with one card, all right, with one component, and, and it'll it'll teach you a lot. Absolutely, and uh, just to plug real quick, I, yeah. since I actually am submitting a panel for Gen Con Online that we're going to teach on um, small footprint games, and we have Jason and I and um, uh, Caesar from Alley Cat, they've been doing a lot of these smaller pieces and Adam, uh, from XYZ, he's starting a cork line and we're all going to be up there talking about these exact things. That's awesome. And how can people access that? I'm pretty sure that if you, it's, it's free, you go on to Gen Con's online, um, and get a badge and, uh, gosh, I'm still kind of learning because uh, I'm not used to all of these online conventions quite yet. Right. But I uh, am trying to get lots of lots of those type of things submitted for these events. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I assume that it'll all be recorded and then hopefully, you know, 
people that maybe couldn't attend at, at the time that they can also uh, access it later. Right. Yeah. With, with zoom, you can do all sorts of things now. Definitely. Okay. Now you've also got a game called Penny Lane, which is not a mint game, but it still falls into this, you know, small box category. Tell me about that one. You know, what's funny is, uh, Penny Lane was uh, designed by Justin and Mel and they were there here at, at 524, but um, they actually did not publish that one through 524. It came through Sparkworks, which is um, part of uh, under tabletop tycoon, like Starling games and things like that. So it's um, not actually under 524, but it does have a lot of the same things since it's those, those designers. Gotcha. Now, is there anything, even though it's you know not technically one of your games, is there anything we can kind of take away from that? It's a, things that maybe Justin learned through designing the uh, the Mint Ten games that, that he was then able to take over into something completely different. Absolutely, uh, it is a lot alike. I think that it is a worker placement. That I think when people play that, uh, they're going to see a ton of similarities between that and Mintworks. It was definitely um, uh, Penny Lane is a lot like Mintworks Plus. Um, the way that they really kind of took it to the next level was, uh, adding, um, some, uh, different ways to, for the cards to interact, because instead of making a neighborhood like Mintworks, they made a lane and the lanes could then connect. And on each edge of the, the cards, they, um, would, uh, make it so that there would be half of a penny or half of um, a worker spot or some different things like that, where you can, um, if you dependent on where you place on the lane, it mattered. Whereas in Mintworks, it doesn't matter where you're placing in the neighborhood. Now, one thing I've noticed about Penny Lane is how beautiful the components are. It's got these awesome little metal pennies, these little metal coins. And then also your mint games have these great little mints and the components are just phenomenal. And then the games that are coming out, you know, soon they've also just got these awesome different kinds of components that you really don't see in other games. So tell me a little bit more about the components and tell me kind of from the publishing side, the marketing side, you know, why those are so important, especially for a game that doesn't have very many components inside the box. Well, yeah, definitely the, uh, uh, the wood components. Um, that's something that was, uh, it's, interesting because um it is relatively inexpensive to have these little pieces um and painting them is great because uh there's no extra cost for screen printing things like that um they're obviously more durable than uh chits or any kind of cardboard component and um but you do have to start to worry about uh different things like uh, like for example, Australia doesn't, they have, um, rules about importing wood, wood type things. Uh, so you have to be careful about that. Uh, you also have to deal with the toy bits and things like that. Uh, what else I would say, um, the pennies, those were cute. Those, um, and the ones that I, I have, I have the gilded, um, uh, edition so they were nice and flashy i know that that was not as as uh, the case with all of the ones that they put out and i'm since i'm not familiar with what they did there yeah that must have been the one that i played because the, the the pennies were just gorgeous and so, Aren't yeah, they just I, I so they're yeah. shiny <laughs> mm-hmm. and then how much do you think that that plays into the success of these games, right? So with Mintworks having these these fun, cute little components, because you, like you said, you could have just used chipboard, you could have used little chits, that would have been fine. But it seems like those components take it above and beyond to the next level of kind of you know, product design. Tell me a little bit more about the publishing thinking behind all that. Well, I would say that um, when you have a good solid theme, people can immerse into it, and they they, uh, especially when you're developing a product for global. Um, marketing. So it is not uh, mints, Altoids, those are not a thing everywhere. Um, it's not so so when you're thinking outside of the United States, people in um, you know, around the world, they're not actually going to get it as much. And but if you can sell it big enough where you people start to understand in those other markets, what you're trying to reference, 
then it becomes even more of a of a big deal because then they get it and it's like an inside joke to them and they're like oh i really really like that now so um finding packaging to do that is is one of the things that i think that uh has been really really great for us because uh it's definitely kind of kitschy and cute and um there were so many people who really got into it they're always like oh i'm afraid my kids are gonna eat it when they get there i'm like please don't do that it's like a nightmare (laughs) and and uh then they also somebody else was saying oh you should put a drop of peppermint oil inside or something for you know that part of the olfactory in uh, immersion and and i and then we actually had some people who assumed that the the wooden mints were real and they were allergic to mints and they would actually avoid our booth if we were at a con or something like that and they're like no 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 it's okay and we on purpose did not put any peppermint anything anywhere (laughs) so i mean it's amazing to see how many how how much people can get all the way into it now tell me about having to be clever with the components, right? Whether it's your, your victory point track or, or things like that. I mean, everything has to fit inside such a small box. And some things, you know, are, are better if they they expand. And so, like, tell me how, how you guys kind of overcame some of these challenges of the constraint of that tin box. Oh, man. Well, okay. So, again, when you're trying to distill and condense and strip down to all these things, you're thinking, get rid of everything you can. So uh, removing excess components and trying to think outside of the box on your scoring system, you don't have a ton of room, just, just you can't put a board in. Um, you need to, to rely on, on putting it, a board together with cards or, and how are you going to uh, pay attention to the scoring on that? Um, uh, then also we've added things like the social media um I won cards and uh, like in mint control, we actually made little business cards for the, for the, the people that were um, the CEOs for the competing candy companies. Um, We also, uh, when you, when you're trying to pay attention to what you can fit, uh, a lot of people may or may not know that Mintworks first edition actually is a different size than Mintworks second edition. Um, that is because uh, Mintworks first edition was the exact size of an Altoid tin. And then when Mint delivery came out, it had a lot of little bits. Um, there was a lot of small tokens for uh, road condition tokens and other um, advanced play tokens that, that were added in. And, there was just so much that you couldn't fit it. So they actually had, uh, we had a custom tin made where our tins are 10 millimeters deeper than a typical tin. And so now um, we actually have uh, a different look to ours that most people don't have. So now it's kind of funny that a lot of people are like, I, the, the first edition is the collector's item now. Cause it's the small one. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha and it's it's smart you know that if you need to change the packaging a little bit then then you do that to uh to fit whatever the the game needs to be now as far as like play, play testing tell me what you're looking for you know whenever y'all are running play tests really trying to get down to that elegance that essence that beautiful you know the way the game is sp- supposed to be played you know you're thinking through the components how everything fits in the box even because i imagine that's also something you, you have to test and, and make sure people understand like how to put it all back together because that's one of the frustrating things about anything is you take it out of the package one time the first time and now it never goes back in the way the way oh, it came yeah. out and so tell me about your play testing process well we have a 3D printer and I have lost track of how many, how many uh, different sizes of tins that Justin ever printed out and then tried fitting everything in in different ways. He went through and figured out how many would fit in everything. And, and uh, it was, it was just one of those research uh, requirements that you have to sit there and you have to know the inside out of, of what your restraints are. So, um, when it comes to playtesting, uh, once you get through the physical part, um, I think that it is a lot like the rest, um, uh, it, 
except for when we would do our remote testing, um, we would always try really hard to do a good job of making a PNP. So that way it can, it was easy to go for, for uh, remote testing. Other than that, it's definitely pretty standard. Um, trying to make sure things are balanced, paying attention to how many, um, uh, how many, things are how many mints cost it you know trying to figure out the balance things like that so pretty pretty standard all right switching gears a little bit let's talk about kind of the publishing and marketing side of things so the games at least on kickstarter are very inexpensive right they're only 10 bucks for a game and that's that's super you know inexpensive especially compared to the gloom havens of the world you know out there right. the hundred dollar games that are, are so prevalent on Kickstarter. So tell me about that side of things. And, and is that just what people expect? Did you do like any kind of market research and figure out that, okay, $10 is the sweet spot. You know, people wouldn't pay 12, they wouldn't pay 19. Tell me about the, the pricing. Well, uh, when we first started out, uh, $10 was, I think what Justin decided was the right, the right amount. Um, he, uh, kind of went through of, depending on what his costs were and did an acceptable markup and things like that. Uh, then at the same time, he also was pushing to do free shipping. I mean, can you imagine how that was in 2016? I'm like a $10 game with free shipping. So um, unfortunately, you know, we had to come back down to reality and uh, as, as the years have gone on, um, that's all kind of shifted overall on, on Kickstarter. Thank goodness. Um, but we have kept true to the $10 mark, um, and obviously now charging shipping, but, uh, what we did do, um, once things were in retail, which that wasn't really necessarily a thing back when we first went to Kickstarter, uh, it's not always a guarantee that you're going to go to retail afterwards. A lot of people are one and dones and, and they just want to make their game and don't really have a plan for retail afterwards or distribution. And we ended up, um, selling it. I think they were at eleven ninety nine for a while. And I think then they were at twelve ninety nine. And then we were like, you know what, this is really a fourteen ninety nine game. Let's do that. And then it's our pleasure to go back to Kickstarter every time and then even go back um, in the pledge manager and offer our prior titles for $10 if they're buying at um, the Kickstarter price. That's kind of what what we do to honor that those roots of coming back to the Kickstarter platform. Now, speaking of retail, you know, shelf space is so important. It's so hard to get noticed at a friendly local game store, you know, someone walks in, there's a thousand games on the shelves and, and it's hard to even just figure out like what game, yeah, as a, as, a, as a gamer, when you walk into game stores, like, gosh, what do I pick up? What do I look at? There's so many different things trying to get your attention. And when you have a very small game, especially a game the size of a mint box, it's even more difficult, I imagine, to stand right. out. And so, you know, I've seen some games that probably could have fit inside of a mint 10 box, but they had like a 10 by 10 uh, box instead. And so 94% of the boxes air after you punch all the right. board, you know, stuff out. And, <laughs> and so you know, that's one way to go is you just have a gigantic box that's way too big for the game. Uh, right. Y'all haven't done that. And so what are some ways that you try to stand out on a store shelf? Oh, we, we, we worked really hard on, on creating a pop display, um, a pop-up display where it could fold shut and then also um, kind of fold back up and create like a back uh, kind of a splash area so that way people could see what it was that you know and, and the price and things like that and we made it so that it would fit 12 of our games and that way it was really easy for a retailer to just say I want a 12 pack pop display and this is where it's going to go on my shelf and it's real quick and easy to peel that back and, and get it going and it takes up a decent amount of space that way. Very cool. And now is it one game? Like, are there 12 copies of the same game in one of these displays? Or do you have like multiple different games in there? Well, it depends on what we've got. Like at, at the beginning, it was just Mintworks. And then um, uh, when Mint Delivery came out, we just added six and six in, in a pop. And now we actually have kind of changed it up and made our own Mint series uh, pop display that's not a, a, a certain color that matches all of them it's its own color and so it all kind of um, can 
can go in and and they can restock as they as as it fits for their specific market. Okay. Now, have you guys thought about doing something kind of like what Jamie Stegmaier did with all the different scythe expansions and components and all the different things? He had like the giant box that you could get and you could kind of put everything into the same box. Have you thought about doing anything like that or having like a collector's edition where you offer, you know, all the games in the Mint series and maybe the next one to come as well as kind of like a big package deal? Man, we have gone the whole gambit like trying to think through everything that we could possibly do there's a lot of people in this last campaign that were asking to see if we were going to have some sort of collector's box um i still don't know what that looks like uh i think that we're going to be doing something to make sure that we can claim as much shelf space on uh, in in a retail store as we can um and I also think it would be wonderful to have a way for people to easily access the small games, grab them right out, and then um, take them in their backpack, but also have a spot on their Calyx that actually fits that instead of trying to stack it on top. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of times people uh, will, will buy these games with the intent to be able to travel with them. They they easily fit in your backpack, fit in your pocket. You can take them to the restaurant. You can take them on vacation. So, what are you guys thinking about from a publishing side of things, a manufacturing side of things, to make it as easy and as simple as possible for people to travel with your games? Oh well, definitely having the tin is is much more durable. I cannot stand seeing tuck boxes run around like that because up and, you know, opening it and shutting it all the time. Oh, it just, it makes me sad. <laughs> when I got my ultra tiny, uh, Epic, I immediately had somebody, we made one of those little wooden ones. Cause I wanted, uh, I wanted a box that, that could stand up to running around with that size of, of game. So that's something that um i really like uh they do pretty well in shipping also um if they do get crunched or whatever in in shipping they're they're easy enough that we can send out quick quick ones i very rarely and people will will tell you this it is much more difficult to send an empty tin than it is to send a a, a full game because when it's empty it is prone to much more damage in shipping. So uh, I'm like, no, I would much rather replace the full game than send you an empty tin. Yeah, I guess another great thing about the net or the tin box is that it has like a little clasp system. You know, a lot of games, it's just a normal box and it can easily slide. You know, the lid can slide off. You know, if it's rolling around your backpack or the, the tug box, you know, the bottom can fall out and the cards just kind of go everywhere. But with the tin, it seems like it just clicks and it's, it's there. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, they actually... Uh, there's there's a fun um, uh, story about how everybody was real cranky about the size of the rule book on the original because uh, it they said that it was it didn't fit and so people kept trying to kind of round the corners for it and and Justin's like no guys I put it there so that if it accidentally opens then it holds in all the mints and so they don't go flying around your back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I mean that was you know how gamers are they can be very polarizing. <laughs> no, not gamers. Anybody no. but gamers. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I haven't seen that in my experience. <laughs> right, right. Of course. <laughs> now, as far as marketing goes, what are what's the messaging? Whenever you're trying to market one of these games, one of these small games, you know that's got a lot of game in a small package. What are what are you saying? What are the phrases that you find yourself and your company kind of gravitating towards? Like what what's the hook that you're trying to bring people in? What are those things as far as your marketing goes? Oh man, I actually just went through and did a a whole thing on this where we went and and made a bunch of li a list of a bunch of words. <laughs> like what do you think uh people think of when they think of 524 or the mint series or, you know, uh, our entire branding strategy. And uh, we made a list of the words and then the connotations, um, what we wanted our current brand um, to what we thought it was and what we wanted it to be. Um, we said words like charming, introductory or accessible or small or clever or surprising or pocketable um uh portable those are those are kind of the words that 
that we really hooked into. Um, and we wanted to kind of keep that going as we kept going. Those are because sometimes your brand kind of just creates itself as, as if, if you are not in that headspace at the beginning, and then you kind of go back and, and recarve it out to see if it's going in the direction you want it to. So luckily for us, it was, you are, we're still portable. We're still small. We're still clever and charming and, and those, that's, that's definitely the way that we want to be thought of. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Now, as far as uh, working with a factory, working with a manufacturer, any advice, any tips and tricks, any, any roadblocks or challenges that you guys ran into when designing one of these types of games, like any things, anything that got lost in translation or anything like that from the factory, the manufacturing side? Oh, gosh. Well, you definitely have to pay attention to the molds. Uh, because we specifically have custom molds. So you've got the extra cost of that. Um, the other part is your minimum uh, quantities that you've got to deal with. And for a mint tin, it's 5,000. Oh, wow. That's a lot more than uh, your typical, you know, only having to order 1,500 or something like that. Yes, exactly. You've got people who are like 1,500 or 2,000 or 500, or it depends on um, a, a lot of things. But when you've got a mint tin, that is not the case. You've got to commit to 5,000 units right there. And uh, you're committing to 5,000 units of a $10 product. So it is it is a, a real risk. So I'm. it's one of those that we're really glad that things have paid off and that we've been able to consistently work with that minimum order quantity. But a lot of people actually email me or message me a lot they're like so um in terms of minimum quantities like do you think i can get a thousand I'm like no no you can't you you it's one of those game concepts that you're either all in or you're not <laughs> in for a penny in for a pound on this one like there's there's you're, you're all the way in yeah and so now at the same time are you able to kind of double up so for instance let's say you only sold two thousand copies of uh, mint works could then you basically use the same tins for mint delivery i mean is it that versatile now it, it kind of depends on um what you are dealing with in terms of the, the molds but on the whole yes you can um and especially if you so now that we've gotten to a point where we have several uh uh in the t several titles in the line and now we have several different languages for the titles in the line we can usually hit very large numbers very cool anything that i've left out any other thoughts or, or ideas or, or anything from the publishing side of things any any stories that maybe stand out in your mind as obstacles you had to overcome challenges you had to figure out ways around anything like that well i think a couple things that i have seen happen in the industry that make me really happy are the game crafter uh when they did their mint tin contest they what they did without i mean it was pretty monumental to us uh that they actually made a mint tin size card uh as part of their product line and to be able to get mint tins um with uh with the printing on them i mean how cool is that that's not anything that we've ever been able to do we've been sitting there stickering these things for like six years and i was so excited when they did that and to have um someone else understand that they're not business card size they're 50 by 86 millimeter with a three millimeter corner like you just that's it's a very specific restriction um i think it it's a really interesting way to go and um when they added their contest it was really cool to see the creativity that came out of that um we actually ended up signing the winner of that contest um uh starforge which uh J jason greeno did and i'm super excited because he has acrylic pieces in it and i'm like that's really cool that's a that's a manufacturing piece that we have not played with yet this is super super cool <laughs> and uh what i love um on bgg which you know that that goes back to the beginning of this whole thing the mint tin contest on bgg 
and there's such amazing creativity that comes out of BGG that they um, have like Project Shrinko. I don't know if uh, very many people know if you search about a uh, search Project Shrinko on on Board Game Geek, they have a whole bunch of people that have tried to shrink their favorite games like terraforming mars or azul or these standards that are big box and again try to distill or condense make it simplified elegant and get it down to that size restriction and then you end up with a cool little pnp named tiny forming mars that stood on the top of the bgg hotness for a few weeks just because people were talking about it i mean there, there's definitely a lot of interest in this niche. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of people doing some really cool, really creative things. I'm excited to see, you know, the the game that Jason uh, designed that won that contest. Jason's an awesome guy, uh, big fan of his. And so really pumped just to kind of see what y'all are able to to do as you partner up on that game for, I assume, a Kickstarter uh, sometime down yep. the road. Yep. yep, soon, soon. Awesome. Well, Rachel, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to leave listeners with? Maybe they're, you know, someone's listening to this. They're designing a, a game, a small box game, a mint 10 size game. What would you tell them? I would say if you are trying to connect people into gaming and making it easy for people to access an affordable way to make memories, you're an amazing person. And I want you to keep doing what you're doing. Definitely. We are in uh, absolute agreement on that. Well, Rachel, again, really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all the, uh, the small box games. I know y'all are, are working on over there and uh, everything else you got going on right now. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?